I want to talk to you this evening about hope. And um, it's not like we haven't touched on the subject before, right? But I want us to look at it through the eyes of Proverbs. And you've probably seen this statement many, many times. It's in Proverbs 13, so if you want to turn there, <coughs> I'll give you time to find it. If not, how about I just read it to you? But we're going to look at it through the eyes of Proverbs and uh, focus on some things tonight about hope. Um, this is Proverbs 13, 12. I'm reading this out of the uh, English Standard Version, which is a little different, not much different from the NIV, but hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desired Fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, if you have the NIV, just a little different there, right? Talks about, am I right, longing? A longing fulfilled. Now, the King James translates it a lot different. But it, it really gets to the point of what hope is. Hope postponed or deferred or delayed the word actually uh, means to be drawn away, to drag something away. When people's expectation of something that they're looking for is pulled away from them for a while, it says it makes the heart sick. The heart becomes broken. The heart becomes damaged because they haven't experienced what they were looking forward to. It's been postponed so long. And deferred so long, they, it affects the soul, the heart. And, you know, when I think about the heart, the cardia in the New Testament, that, you know, if you believe in your heart, it's not, I mean, cardia is the blood pump, but he's not talking about this organ. He's talking about your soul. So it says hope deferred makes really the soul of a person broken, sick. And I want you to see the comparison to that statement, the opposite, a desire or longing fulfilled is a tree of life. This is the opposite of what the first statement says. But, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But, a longing, a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope is posed here as a, a, a longing or a desire or an expectation of something coming to pass that people desire. And the opposite of that, the heart being sick, the opposite is one's life becomes a tree of life. That's a pretty big difference, isn't it? From the heart being sick to having a tree of life. So let's take hope for a moment. Just this particular word, this word form for hope, if you look it up, like in one of the websites... It's only used six times in the Old Testament, this particular form of the word hope. Only used six times in all of the New Testament or Old Testament. Half of them are in Proverbs. Half of them are in Proverbs, which that ought to give us a clue that God is trying to teach us some. Proverbs is pretty much philosophy of life, how people live their life. What is the focus of life? What do they focus on? And he usually compares two different ones, the righteous and the wicked, 
the, those who are diligent, those who are lazy. It's always like this comparison between the two. And this is the comparison that he gives in Proverbs 13, 12. Before um, I, I get to the other, I'm going to read the next two. And they're in chapters 10 and 11, by the way. So you don't have to go very far if you have your Bible open. If you have your Bible open. I was reading something today that wasn't really connected to this because I'm just, I love history and, um, and to be honest with you, I, I spent two Sundays in church with our grandkids. Um, first time was just me and the grandkids. Second time it was Brenda and I and the grandkids. So I took the Sunday that Kelly was in the hospital, I took the two grandkids to their Mimi's church, which is a Lutheran church. And... Um, <clears throat> have high, high respect for their liturgy. And uh, I would sing the songs, and Brenda gets tickled at me because I, she says, you sing too loud. <laughs> because the second Sunday I was singing the song, and I thought the next word coming up would be right into the note, and I'm the only one that blurted out the word. And, of course, she was very embarrassed for me for the five people around us that heard, probably heard me. But, uh, you know, we're singing the songs, and, uh, but Lutheranism has, a, it's, it's really a, a dressed-up Catholicism. And, uh, and I don't say that negatively. I, I just know that Luther didn't want to leave the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. And October the 31st, 1517, is when he nailed the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg Castle door. <clears throat> now, I want to tell you something. Just for your curiosity, you ought to look it up and read them. It's lucky he didn't get the treatment that John Huss got. That he wasn't burned at the stake. <laughs> because you read that, it's like, how did that guy ever survive? Well, he survived because he had people high up in the civil government of Germany that protected him. Or they would have strung him up and burned him at the stake. But all of this about... Lutheranism, and then, you know, I'm, I love Eric Metaxas, and he's got a book coming out on Luther for the five, this October 31st will be the 500th anniversary, and he's got a book ready to be released, and I read Bonhoeffer, I just consumed Bonhoeffer, which Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor, and so as I was reading, just casual reading today, I come across some things that I that I wanted to, it jumped out to me when I was doing this. Because <clears throat> I'm going to mention this right here at this point, the importance of the Old Testament. You know, Bonhoeffer was part of what they call the Confessing Church. This was uh, Karl Barth and uh, Martin Niemuller. And these were Lutheran pastors who looked at Adolf Hitler as this guy's crazy. And the church should not embrace him. But for the most part, the Lutheran leadership embraced him. And they were dissenting people. They opposed the church being linked in with the nationalistic fervor of Germany. They needed to keep those two things separate. But this is what the Nazi party was calling and demanding for the churches in Germany to do. Listen to this. <clears throat> the removal of all pastors unsympathetic with national socialism. So if you didn't do that when Hitler marched to the street, 
and uh, hey Hitler, you know, you couldn't be a pastor. The expulsion of members of Jewish descent. This was before they started pushing them into ghettos and then hauling them off to concentration camps. They started making it illegal for a Jewish descent person to be a pastor of a church in Germany. The implementation of the Aaron Paragraph Churchwide, which was the white race was supreme over everything else. And, and here, get this. The removal of the Old Testament from the Bible. Now, how many of you think that should be a red flag? <laughs> that, uh, no, Hitler is not a friend to the church if he's not a friend to the whole Bible. But believe it or not, for the most part, the Lutheran church went with it. Removed all Jewish people from leadership and looked the other way when all this was going on. The removal of non-German elements from religious service and the adoption, not only to remove the Old Testament from the Bible, but get this, they wanted to reinvent Jesus as a more heroic and positive interpretation of the Aaron race should be portrayed to be battling mightily against the corrupt Jewish influences. They wanted to create a Jesus who was militaristic along with removing the Old Testament. So do you see how important the Old Testament is? When someone so demented as Adolf Hitler was could not get his foothold as long as there was the Old Testament staring him in the face, they just remove it. It ought to let us know that we need to know this book. We need to know this book. We need to know this book better than we know church tradition. Because it becomes a dangerous thing when we put church tradition alongside Scripture. Everything we do should have the authority of Scripture behind it. So this is another example of why we need to know this book. Now, I said this word appears six times in the Old Testament. So here's the other two places in Proverbs that this word is used. Now, hope is, is all through the Old Testament, but I'm talking about this form of the word. Proverbs 10.28 is one of the other of the three places. Here it reads, The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Keep that in mind. The hope, what is hope? How do we define hope? We're going to get to that in just a moment. But the hope of the righteous brings joy, which is kind of like what a tree of life should do, right? tree of life should be positive energy. But the expectation of the wicked will perish. The other one is in Proverbs 11, verse 7. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. Now, do you see the role of expectation with hope? It's alongside the word hope. It's like a, a partner to it. These are statements that capture the philosophy of life, the expectations that people carry through their everyday life, how people see life. The righteous have a hope that brings joy. 
That's Proverbs 10, 28. It causes them to be like in a state of life, of energy, a tree of life, a source of continuation. The wicked do not have hope beyond the moment. It says when the wicked dies, there goes his hope as well. Why? Because that's all he was living for. He was living for right now. Is it possible that the people of God can be pulled in to living for right now and miss the prevailing truth that hope that we have is not a right now only hope? In fact, if we make the mistake of putting too much emphasis on the right now, we're going to we're going to find ourselves in trouble. Because what? why is that? Why is living for right now so dangerous, even for people who know God, who love Jesus, who come to church on Sunday, read their Bible, but you get pulled into right now so much so you're absorbed in it. And if there's any example of that is what we just went through the last two weeks. It's trying to press through all of that. It says, what is the overriding thing that God wants to do here? Besides surviving the moment, what does God want us to have? He wants us to have an enduring hope that goes past the moment. The wicked do not have hope beyond what is right in front of them. They're living for that moment. What about the expectation of wealth? It says that perishes too. That will go as well. So what does hope look like? For us as the people of God. I can tell you what it looks like. It, it does not measure its reality by what's going on right now. Listen to me. We cannot make, define our, who we are by right now. And why is that so crucial? Because trouble awaits us. Trouble awaits us all, unexpectedly. We know that from this past week. It's right there. It's right in front of us. How do we survive the shattering of our trust, the shattering of what we feel so stable, and all of a sudden things are not stable, things are out of control? How do we react? Well, we better have hope within our souls, hope that carries us through that. Here's, Here's what makes... You know, in verse 28 of Proverbs 10, he's comparing two right there. The righteous have hope that brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. So how, what's the difference there? Because the righteous expect a certain outcome eventually. The righteous look at something and they do not accept the current situation as the final outcome. Your hope goes past what's challenging it right then. The the enduring hope that we have in the Lord carries us through the unsettledness of life. Let me take you to an explanation of hope in the New Testament. This is Romans chapter 8. You know, I guess this is being recorded, right? Yeah, you're recording. So I'm responsible for what I say. 
I'd rather ask people questions about what they believe than challenge them about what they believe. And I think probably me having a friendship with a, a Max Russer, a, a Catholic monk for seven years, charismatic, filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, this guy pursued me. I didn't pursue him because I was like, ugh. So, but he became one of my dearest friends. And he explained so much about why people think the way they think in a liturgical, sacramental grace setting. And that's not terms that we use very often at Childersburg First Assembly of God. But he kind of gave me the mindset. So here's where, here's where I think we have to go when we have to ask questions. Where in Scripture is that? Where do you find that in Scripture? You will not find in Scripture that the air conditioner has to be set at 72. For some, 68 for others, and 78 for others. But I'm sure there's some people who think that it, it should say that. You see the things that we get up in arms about? I'm just pointing out one thing that could create a furor among people, and that is the climate control inside the sanctuary. That is not mentioned in Scripture. <laughs> I know your comfort probably is, but God wants me to be comfortable. I know it's His will for me to be comfortable. Maybe not at the expense of someone else's comfort. You know, there's the conundrum. You know, who, whose who's, who's God's will is supposed to be the overriding principle? But we need to, when it comes to what we do, what we, what we say, what we believe, where is that? <coughs> Does it, doesn't Paul at one time mention, it might have been Peter, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you to those who are wondering, why do you believe what you believe? To be able to tell them. Not tell them, I don't know. I'll get my pastor to call you. He'll explain it to you. That's not in the Bible, by the way. Let me take you to Romans 8. And if there's any verse, is there any chapter in the Bible we ought to at least be really, really familiar with? You ought to be really familiar with John 3, 1 Corinthians 13, and Romans 8. And Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. <laughs> it's hard to kind of start limiting, right? But Romans 8 is one of the great chapters in the Bible. It talks about the kind of hope that he's talking about in Proverbs. Same hope. Look at the difference, the nuance that is introduced here in Romans 8. I'm going to start reading verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation. Are you, following, are you connecting these dots? We know that the whole creation, everything created by God has been groaning like in the pains of childbirth. But not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly 
as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, that is the redemption of these bodies we live in. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So when do you need hope? When you can't see it. <laughs> we, uh, you know, uh, there's one place in, the, uh, in, in Isaiah 40, 31 that we quote all the time. And if you, it's out of the King James. That's I learned all my memorization out of King James. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings of the eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Um, but if you read that in a, in a more exact translation, it doesn't say wait. It says those who put their hope in the Lord. Waiting is part of an expectant hope. It's not like sitting down and just waiting for something to happen. It's waiting for the expected entry of God's power. It's not just a bland waiting. It's a waiting with an intent, waiting with an expectancy. And is there expectancy here? Is hope in verse 23? Let me take you back to verse 23. Is hope in verse 23? Where can you find hope in verse 23? I just gave you a cue about Isaiah 40, 31. Wait eagerly. It, it is not mentioned by its word hope, but there's hope. And doesn't he say in the next verse, and this is the hope. What is he referring to in verse 23? It is the waiting eagerly. It is the waiting with expectation. This is why expectation is compared all through Proverbs when it comes to hope. The righteous have hope that brings joy. But the wicked, their kind, their expectation is perishing. Why? Because it's not based on that hope. It's based on what can, what can this do for me now? How can this better me now? It's about me living. It's a dominance of I, the I culture, the me culture. For in this hope, verse 33, we wait eagerly. Verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. We're saved by grace through faith. What's the rest of it? Not of ourselves, not of works, lest we should boast. Not of anything we have done, because then we can take credit for it. And we brag about all that we've done. And all. You see, here's, here's the danger. You know, I, I had this great conversation with my son-in-law, and I don't think he'll ever listen to the podcast, but here it goes. Uh, and I don't mind if he does. About Western thought. And he said, what do you mean by Western thought? I, I'm talking about the American version of Christianity, the Canadian version of Christianity, that we can go to Sunday... And check off Sunday, and it means nothing to so many people between Monday and Saturday. 
I missed Wednesday night. I didn't get to go to church. Either Wednesday night I was there. And, you know, I almost apologized to Keith Green this morning when I was interacting with him that I'm sorry I've neglected you for the last two weeks. Because I didn't want to blast him through the house and wake up everybody because that's what I do in the mornings. But I miss Wednesday night. But it, why have we gotten to a place where a prayer meeting is probably the least attended, a prayer gathering, just a prayer focus is the least attended function we do? And Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Of all the functions that he believes ought to happen in this room, in this building, in this sanctuary, we are like the least prone to do that. And this is why it's, 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 a, it's a dangerous thing to live in our culture because we check things off. We were there, we did that, we go home, and we don't have to worry about it until next Sunday. And I, and I really shared that because I think liturgical church is even more in danger of that. I go and have liturgy, I take communion, I have absolution and confession, and I do all of that, and I'm good to go until next Sunday when I come back and do the same thing all over again. And I will tell you that Pastor Magruder preached a great message. He preached from Acts, the last several verses in Acts 2. And I'm looking around, I'm like, you keep preaching like this, I don't think you'll be here long. <laughs> or unless they really don't care what you're preaching. And they're just checking off. I'm not, I'm not saying all of them there were like that. But I'm like, I'm looking around like, I'm convicted. <laughs> that the church was known for daily sampling the apostles' doctrine, daily fellowship, daily breaking bread, daily prayers. And he says, that's what the church in the New Testament is known for. What are we are known for? What is, and, and he called his church name. What, is, what are we known for? I'm like, yeah, amen. But it's like, th this is where we're at. I, I'm, I'm like, where is God going to break through to us and break through our, our mode of thinking that it's okay to just get a sample here and there when he's supposed to be the very essence of our lives? This is what he's getting at. The substance, it says, faith is a substance of things Hope for. We're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God. And then he describes faith in Hebrews. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. See how faith and hope work? You can't have one without the other. It's impossible to have faith and not have hope because hope is intertwined with it. Do you see what he says? Hope that is seen. What did he say? It's not hope. He makes a declarative statement that if you say you have hope, but it's not really settled because you don't see the results, he said, that's not hope. You're, you need to use a different word. It, this, that, that disqualifies the use of hope. And he says, and he follows that up by asking a question, and who hopes for something that they can't, that is seen. Who, who goes there? Hope is for what you can't see. Otherwise, it's not hope. 
Isn't that what faith is? It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You do not have to have faith right now to say, you know what? I believe I'm sitting on a chair. Yeah, therefore I'm sitting on a chair. You see how much faith we put into a light switch? We go and flip it on, and it's only when something's wrong that we're surprised. And when the power goes off and we light candles, guess what we do when we go to the bathroom? <laughs> there go, I said, all oh, the power's off. Because see, if it's always a constant, what do we need faith for? See, when you and I face things in our life that challenges the essence of who we are, that's where faith hibernates. That carries you through those questions. Seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. That's, that's a false statement. Seeing, if you see it, you're just assenting to it. You're just saying the, the obvious but the confession of faith is when you don't see it and you believe it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And Paul translated John 14 into that application. I want you to see. And this is the hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. For we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. And what is it that we're waiting for? What was the subject that we're waiting for? What are we waiting for? What does he say around, I think it's verse 22. What are we waiting for? We groan for, we're groaning with creation so that we can, maybe it's verse 23, the adoption of our, the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What Paul is doing, he's putting a different angle to John 14. And John 14 is the promise of Jesus. I go to prepare a place for you. Where did he say he was going to prepare a place for you? In his father's house. The location is his father's house. He said, I'm going to prepare a covenant place of existence, a permanent residence for you to be with me in my father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for that. And then the hope that we have anchored in our souls has this groaning. We groan, we wait for the redemption of our bodies, this resurrected state that we're supposed to be in. We groan for that. You know, uh, I, prayed for, I prayed for Evelyn, for God's mercy just cover, for the peace of of Christ to fill her and that she, she would feel the presence of Jesus in these last days she would live. And her husband said to me before I left on this trip, he says, you know what? If I die tonight, my life is content. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I've, I've lived, I am so happy with what God has done in me. And, and he's kind of paused. He says, now I'm not trying to catch the next bus out of here, but... <clears throat> But I knew what he was saying. And basically, Evelyn got tired. 
that groaning, that hope was anchoring her. And it's amazing when people know they're facing death. And Bill Smith knows he's facing death. The incredible peace that he has, that the groaning that I have is going to be realized one day when graves are going to be disturbed and resurrected bodies are going to lift up out of those places of internment. And they're going to have the evidence of Christ's resurrection all over them. That's what we're going for. That's why we have to have hope. And it's that hope that keeps us going. You know, Brother Strader, I'll never forget him saying, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, people says, well, you know what? Living the Christian life is such a good life. If there's no resurrection of the dead afterwards, it's okay. He said, not for me. There's a cost sometimes to living this life, and there's got to be some kind of reward at the end of it. And isn't that what Paul finally said? He says, if that's the case, we're really miserable human beings because it's not living down here every day is not just a wonderful parade of good things. There's enough things that we face. We say, there's got to be another dimension. And this is what he says we place our hope in. Oh, that God would restore that hope. We, we need a little conviction, though. We need to be a little unsettled by our complacency and for God to pry us out of our ruts and say it's time to step up and go the extra mile and take the extra steps to see his kingdom come and his will be done. Would you stand with me?